Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have together in your word. And I pray, Lord, that we would see um, the beauty that can exist after temptation, the conflict, the time in the desert, that you would bring us closer to you. If we are just wrecked and we aren't brought to a place of wholeness and fullness and a place of coming closer to you, then that desert season can be super painful and it can be hard to even withstand in the middle, but even the aftermath. So I pray, Lord, as we take a look at these passages and we contemplate the wildernesses that we've all walked through, you help us to see just how much you have sustained us and cared for us, and how much you're using that time for us, just like you used it with your son. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we're walking in the fullness of what God has for us, then everything feels pretty good. Like I'm sure we've all had those moments, whether it's when you were a first a new believer and first coming to Christ, first really experiencing that kind of community. But then also, like think of all the times that you've been used by God in a pretty special way. And that's all over the map. It doesn't mean that it's just when you've been in that moment with that person, praying that prayer, and you, you get to experience when they come to the Lord, and you see it like you're we all have those images of like, that's what I want. I want to be an evangelist like that. I want to be articulate. I want to be there. But think about all the other ways in which the Lord uses it. To bring a meal to someone. To be a shoulder to cry on. Those moments when tragedy hits and you have nothing to say. You don't know what to say. You don't have the words to even come out of your mouth. And, but you're there. You're in the presence of it. Think of the times when it's just complete, awe-inspiring beauty. The birth of a child. I have in my the journal app that I have often shared with you, especially in the last few weeks, I have the first picture of Savannah that happened about 30 minutes after she was born. And it's, every time that pops up on her birthday, every year, oh, and I captured that moment. That's my little girl. And then I have to deal with her as a teenager now. And so thankfully I have that reminder of just how cute she used to be. But just think of the overwhelming joy that you have, but then think of the, t- the tough times. When you've walked through some really tough times, there's been some beauty even in those times too. So we get this example of Jesus and what He did. We've talked about the temptations, we've talked about the multi-layers of that, and then now we get to look at what happened right after. After He's tempted, but it should help us to see that it's also part of what happens with us. That right after, in Luke chapter 4, after the temptation, after the desert. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now think about how often you've had that kind of a, maybe it's not 40 days in the desert, but when you've been through hell on earth, that God didn't use you after that? Did He use you in a way that you moved forward, you moved past, you came out stronger, you came out more aware, you came out closer to God? I mean, that's ultimately what happens after the desert. You're closer to the Lord. Because in the desert, you had to cling to Him with everything you had. Your relationship with Him grows, your, your, your hunger for the Word, your hunger for community, your hunger for people that are like mine, like you, it grows in you. 
Now, none of us want tragedy to hit so that we will grow closer to God. That's, I don't think sadism or masochism. One of you like pain, sadist, masochist, you enjoy the pain. Nobody wants that. You don't pray for that. Please, Lord, send me pain and turmoil in my life so I can grow closer to you. If you're praying those kinds of prayers, we need to have a whole other conversation. But isn't that the truth of a lot of what happens? I mean, we've all been in those circumstances. Someone has suddenly gone home to be with the Lord, and there's a loss in grief, and you have, you're clinging to God. You don't know what to do. Those, those moments of despair in the middle of the night, when you don't know what to do, you don't know how to move, you don't know how to function, you're not sure what to do next, and you cry out to God, and then you, if you've been around people enough, you'll hear people say, in that season of pain and loss and despair, I grew closer to the Lord. I can say that in the last month. Like, you grow closer to God when you don't have, you've reached the end of yourself, the end of your power, the end of your effort, the end of your ability, and you have nothing left to do except stand there with open hands saying, God, you have to do this. I can't do this. And he shows up. Jesus has just gotten done with 40 days in the desert, tempted by the devil, enticed to do things that are outside of the will of God. He corrects the devil, smashes the devil, pushes him away with the very word of God, but does the devil go away? We talked about that two weeks ago. He left for another season, waiting for another time to come at Jesus. And that's what happens to us. You don't go through one desert season and say, I did my time six years before I get that jury duty letter again. It's not how it works. You might get a reprieve for a few years before the enemy comes after you. It might be the next day. The hits just keep coming until he calls us home or he returns. But Jesus is our example. After the desert, he returns to Galilee in the Spirit of God and he teaches. And the report of his teaching, of his influence, of his, it just spreads. Hasn't that happened to several of you in this room? You've lost loved ones. You've been through a season. You've had a cancer scare. You've been in treatment. You've drawn closer to God. And then after that happens and he takes you through that season, it's kind of hard to contain some of you. You talk about it all the time. Because it's part of your story. You feel closer to God and you're so overwhelmingly thankful. Because he's taking you through that. There's a, a, a word that's used. Oh, wrong. That we kind of banter about. And I, if, if what I've found is if you are over the age of 40, which is me, then you often look at the younger generations and go, oh, they're so soft. Right? Are we all like that? Do we all say that? And what's funny is at one point in your life, someone said you were the soft one. It was probably your grandparents said, oh, these kids born in the 50s, they're all soft. They didn't go through the Great War. 
They don't know what it's like to sacrifice. They've been born into greatness from 45 on, and they've got it so easy. They have no idea what it was like to go through the Depression. They have no idea what it's like to go through a world war. Please, weak you. Well, that would be all of you. Right? Every generation, I'm, I'm pretty sure, picks on the one that just comes after for being weak. And if you think about it, every progressive generation, especially later, we have more technology, more access to medicine, more ac- we live longer. I don't know if we live healthier, but we live longer. We live all of these things that we have. So there seems to be this constant softening of us all. So we are hungry for some resilience. I read a few, I was last year or two years ago, I read a book. It's called The Pioneers by David McCullough. And he describes families moving from Pennsylvania on the Ohio River, moving into the mid Ohio Valley where I used to live. That's so why I picked up the book, because it's telling all the stories of these little towns in Ohio that I had been to. And, and on the journey on a river barge from Pennsylvania to Ohio, with all their belongings, took them six weeks, this family lost two children along the way. And they just buried them on the banks of the river, and they went on with their lives and moved on. Now, I'm not saying that we should all experience that kind of loss, but there was just a different season in life where people were going through terrible, terrible things. And I'm not diminishing the terrible things we go through, but where's your resilience? Where's your trust? Where's your hope? Where's your... Like, how many times have you been through something really hard? You do hard things. You put yourself to the test. You, you've experienced some tough things, whether it's boot camp, three-a-days for football, uh, Indiana basketball, tryouts in the Bobby Knight era. Like, whatever it looks like, like, have you been through hard stuff, and at the end of it, you go, man, I made it through this. I can make it through this. I can do this. We, we applaud that in a lot of areas of life. But we tend to run from that or don't look at it when it comes to our faith. I'll do the, the training for the marathon, and I'll run the marathon and I'll put the sticker on my car, and I'll have the medal, and I'll post it on social media, and I'll tell everyone I'm a marathon runner because I went through something hard. It's an accomplishment. But how often are we thankful and outspoken about the spiritual battles that we've made it through and the Lord has kept us close? We almost push away or slide those aside. We need to have a spiritual resilience, and that comes from doing a few things. Number one, we have to understand that this calling on our life, this is from Dan Wilt, I forgot to credit him, it's from the Jesus in the Wild that we've been studying, um, book that goes with it. Our calling will always be, always be contested, but know that with each challenge we can emerge with greater spiritual resilience, capacity to trust, and hopefully a more fierce and steadfast commitment to walk in our calling into union with Christ. With each spiritual challenge, we can emerge with a greater capacity to trust. Trust the Christian community, to trust your friends, to trust God. The most thing to take away. He's gotten you through this. You trust Him even more. So, in the middle of the trials, in the middle of the attacks, in the middle of being in that wilderness time, are you pressing into God or are you pushing Him away? Do you rely on Him? Do you trust Him? Do you call out to Him? Or do you shut down, ignore? try to push away. You're going to grow 
if you're clean. Palm Sunday is what we celebrate today. If you think about the ministry of Jesus' life, in the three years he had his public ministry, all of the stuff was leading to Palm Sunday, was leading to the cross. We'll talk about the cross more next week, but you think about all that was happening in those three years. How many times he was pushed away, how many times he was rejected, how many times he was going from one side of the lake to the other, how many times religious leaders were trying to get him dead, but then think of all the good stuff, the relationships he was building around the campfire with those disciples. the homes that he visited, the synagogues he preached in, the joy that he was able to communicate with so many people. People lost and feeling like they had to polish themselves up and be perfect when it comes to what the religious leaders had said. And he rolls into town and says, no. It's about your relationship with him, not about following the rules. And in Palm Sunday, he marches in. After all of those trials, all of those temptations, all of the stuff from the desert moment, the beginnings of his public ministry in around the Sea of Galilee afterwards, and all those journeys along the way, and all those conversations, and all those relationships developed. And then they culminate at Palm Sunday. He fulfills Scripture by riding into town on a donkey to become king. And as soon as he does that, he has a week. This holy week that we are walking through, relationship building, tensions building, he's poking the religious monster right in the eye, irritating the religious leaders. Think of all the turmoil and all the people that want him dead, and the whole time he knows it's coming. This is it. This is why I've come here. Jesus has existed forever. No beginning, no end, existing forever. Comes to earth for a mere 30-some years. Lives a life as a mason son in community with his family. And for three years, he breaks open everything. And on Palm Sunday, he marches in claim. King, show them all. He's rejected, killed, comes again. I was reading something this week. It was this is like a, 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 a preacher joke. You know, you have dad joke. You have a preacher joke. Um, Jesus never attended a funeral. We have two recorded funerals before Jesus went to the cross. And in both of those, when he entered them, he raised them from the dead. I don't know what that means. I have no theological underpinning for it. I mean, in three years, I'm sure he experienced some loss in there too. Or was in a town where there was a funeral happening. But Jesus himself, every time he showed up at a funeral, he either walked out of the grave himself or he healed the people who were supposedly dead or were dead. And he healed them and raised them from the dead. That was, that's a, put that into your Christian dad joke catalog. How can he do this? How does he build into this? How do we build into resilience? How do we have that kind of a strong faith? In Hebrews chapter 11... It, the title of mine says, By Faith. We call it the Hall of Heroes. And it has this whole list of all of the people of faith. The full assurance of faith. It lists it all out. Moses, Abraham. And then it gets to the end in verse 32. And it lists off um, Gideon, Barak, Samson, all these people. And it says, verse 33, Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, 
escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. And without missing a beat in the middle of verse 35, there's a period that says, some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So this promise, this we, we build into our resilience, is not that life is going to be perfect, not that life is going to be a bed of roses, not that life is always going to be without suffering or pain or issue. We build in because we see that the history of the faith, the history of the people of God, is some conquer and some have great victorious stories and some are sawn in two. Some are tortured to death. And both are signs of faithful people clinging to God. We aren't promised everything to be perfect. We're promised Him. We're promised that He will get us through it. And then the author of Hebrews puts the therefore. Don't say it. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's the witnesses are people who have suffered to death in their faith, and people who have conquered the enemy in their faith. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God that Jesus willingly, out of joy, went to the cross for you and for me. And the line, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We all are running a different race. We all have a different race to run. Some of us had suffering when we were younger, and as we've grown older and gotten older, things have been pretty okay. Some of us had pretty great childhoods, pretty great young times in our lives, and then we hit... Our 40s and things all unraveled and fell apart. Some people have no sickness. Complete bill of health forever. And then for some reason you hit 65 or 70 and then everything hits. Like, but I haven't taken anything but Tylenol my whole life. How did I get cancer? Or you have childhood leukemia. child before they even had enough time to have germs in their system has cancer. No, I, I don't know everyone's race. I don't know what God has for you. I know that some are victorious and some are crushed, but they're not defeated. I don't know. But I have the promise, because of the cloud of witnesses, and if I would bring a lot of you into this cloud, that we get to be those kind of witnesses to other people. We get to be the church to others. When they see you suffer, they see you go through crazy times, and you're still clinging to the Lord, still profess His love, that makes God look so beautiful. Therefore, since we have these stories, we can run the race that Jesus has for us. Why? Because He's right there with us the whole time. 
He endured the cross and the shame of sin out of joy for the people that he loved. His creation. He made us. We rejected him. We push away from him. And he still loves us. And he died for us. That's a powerful statement of testimony of his care for you and for me. So, practically, how do we do this? When we come through the wild, we have to rest. Jesus rested. He was taken care of by the angels. They sat him down. They took care of him. We don't know exactly what that looks like. Was it a spa treatment? Probably not. I don't know that he... Was it a cool bath? Was it a hot spring? Was it piles of food? Was it... What kind of food was it? What did it... We don't know all those details. We just know he was cared for. There was a time of rest. When we go through these desert times, when we go through our own wilderness, we have to have some kind of way to maintain who we are. We have to have a way to come back to who we are. And how you build to get ready for this is the practices we always talk about. You heard me talk about rhythms for a long time. What is the rhythm in your life when things happen? Do you have daily rhythms that give you confidence and build into every part of your life? What's it look like to worship? What's it look like in times of prayer, in times of writing things out, processing your thoughts? Do you have a close confidant you can share the deepest of things that you're struggling with? Do you come to be part of the Christian community? Do you have people you trust that you can hold on tight? What kind of stuff are you struggling with and rolling with? Are you in the Word? Are you in prayer? Do you take Sabbath? Do you actually rest? This is hard for a lot of us. I have good seasons of this, and I have seasons where I'm really bad at it. Do you take four or five hours? Do you take a day a month? We're called to rest once a week, aren't we? Take a Sabbath. Now, I've been alive long enough to know that lots of people don't take that practice every single week. So do you take, I'm going to try to get you to take a day a month. Do you take a day a month where you're not doing things that are just for productivity? Do you, like you're just resting with the Lord? That doesn't mean that you spend seven hours in a silent chant on your knees, praying all seven hours, but do you, do you take a day? We're called to take a day a week. But do you take a day where you just are thankful for what God has done? Thankful for the provision, thankful for friendship, that you just sit and rest knowing that God's got you. The harbor ministry I've been a part of, we try to get guys to take one day of space a month. And what's happened is most guys try to split that up in two days. If I can take four hours on a Saturday just to be with God, great. I can do that twice a month. But eight hours away all by myself, that can be pretty rough. But you got to schedule it. you got to do it. Do you ever just sit back and are filled with thankfulness? Well, that kind of thankfulness unto the Lord when you're in the wilderness, you have a pattern of weekly or monthly resting with God, trusting Him, knowing Him, then when the wilderness hits, it's not all of a sudden, where is God? Does He even love me? Instead, you begin, you know the pattern. You have that pattern in your life. You're reading the Word, you're talking to Him, you're resting with Him, and when it hits, You'll be shaken. When it hits, it'll hurt. But you don't start rejecting God. You start pressing in more. 
do you rest? And after we rest, feast. Isn't that the pattern that Jesus is giving us? I've been through this turmoil. I've had a pattern of rest, so I know that God is there. And after I've been through the wilderness, I take time to soak it in. I take time to evaluate, and then I celebrate. I know it sounds weird because if you've been through a really tough time to say, I'm supposed to celebrate loss, we're supposed to celebrate grief, but isn't that what we do? We don't celebrate the loss of loved ones, but don't we gather together and have a meal? Don't we gather together and tell stories of the person that has just passed? Don't we gather together and reminisce and talk? And isn't every funeral that I've been to that's been in my family has been like a family reunion? Like there's deep sadness. And then there'll be these pockets of hysterical laughter. And some, when I was younger, it didn't feel right. I'm like, but we're supposed to be really sad, and we're supposed to be in this moment. We were, but then I'm also here with my cousins, and we're doing dumb stuff in the back of the funeral home. In Indiana, most funerals are, you have an evening visitation for about four hours in the evening, and that's when the whole public comes. And it's long, and it's four hours, and if you are a sibling or a daughter or a son, then you're there, and you kind of, it's almost like a receiving line. The kids get bored real fast. So the back of every funeral home is like the kitchen area that's filled with snacks and sweets and soda, and then the kids are going crazy. And at some point, as you get older, you transition from the craziness into the adult world, and if you're like me, you go back and forth because you're just a child. And then the next day is when you have the actual ceremony, the service, the memorial service. And it's usually smaller. And it's usually mostly like really close friends and family. It's not the whole public. In Little Vincent's, Indiana, if someone was a teacher in the public, the whole town would show up. There'd be hundreds of people coming for the night before the visitation. And then the funeral's tiny, smaller. But then there's the feet. It's always lunch meat trays. It's always piles of cookies. It's always, there's always food. Some traditions you do a wake. You do it at a house. You do it in, you have people gather around. There's always some kind of a celebration when you've been, if you are a cancer survivor, I'm not sure if Ivinson does it because I've not seen it. I know the hospital in Indiana and West Virginia, Children's Hospital does it. Um, they, there's a bell that you ring when you take, had your last cancer treatment. Does Ivinson have that too? So when you're leaving, you ring it. I've been at Children's Hospital visiting kids in Denver, and they do it over the loudspeaker. Some chimes hit, and everybody knows there's a child that's leaving because they're cancer-free. They're done. And so everyone stops, and you're like, there's like a collective, yeah. There's a celebration that happens. Celebrate, feast. How often have you been out of a surgery? Something happens, you made it through, even if it's, like, I remember when I had my appendix out, which isn't that big of a deal. That day, we smoked a prime rib. And I ate a lot of it. You come out of those tough times. And you, I know you've all seen it. You come out of a tough season, and friends will say, hey, let's go out. Not to celebrate the darkness that you've walked through. Not to celebrate the pain. No one celebrates that, but to show you that you're going to make it through this. And it is a beautiful picture of community 
when you can wrap your arms around the people that you love, the people that are close to you, and you're saying, we got it. And it's over some good food, it's over maybe some good drinks, and it's over time together. They've taken time out, and it just shows, you're not alone in it. We feed. And lastly, disconnect on me? Can you help me, Dan? We move forward. We step into the next phase. God has shown us. He's grown us. He's taught us. He's got us through the desert. And then we step into the next, the next phase. We move forward. We don't just sit back and go, oh, woe is me. We've all been around people that are like that. That it seems like life stopped in that desert season. And they don't make it through. Maybe they didn't have that connection with God. Maybe they weren't built a resilient person. Maybe they didn't have people to sit around with them and feast with them after the pain or after the joy. They just didn't have that. But we step forward into whatever God has for us next. Hopefully stronger. That's, that's, a, that's a loaded word. Hopefully more reliant on God to get us to the next place. You might not walk out like, yes, I've made it through and I've got the championship belt and, or the green jacket. Or, I, don't, I don't have all that. But I trust God more. He got me through this. I read the Bible. I went to church. I sang the songs. I did all the things. But now I really know that I know that I know. Because I've walked desert. And all the stuff that I went to Sunday school with, all the things I debated, all the things I sipped coffee with other people with, all of the stuff that we, now I really know. I've been through hell and God was right there with me and got me. So what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Well, Jesus, go ahead, Dan. In Luke chapter 4, we see what he does. He starts in, we already read, 14 to 15. And then he goes to his hometown. So he's taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. He goes all over the Sea of Galilee, preaching and teaching. We don't have an exact timeline here, um, but most people think it was at least a few months. And then he goes to his hometown. He goes to the synagogue in Nazareth. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been, been fulfilled in your hearing. And all marveled at his teaching. And they said, Isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that the Mason's son? Where is this authority coming from? It's Jesus proclaiming, uh, I'm the Messiah. He didn't just rest. He went through the desert. 
His connection to God in that temptation helped him to grow in his confidence, helped him to grow into the calling that was on his life. He knew all that was coming. He knew all the pain was coming. He knew the cross was coming. He knew Palm Sunday was coming. He knew all of this. And he stepped into it, went to his hometown. Now, we, if you read, the hometown rejects him. He just said he's the Messiah. We're going to throw him off a cliff. There's this interesting line in that story. Verse 29. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I want to know more about that. They took him to the cliff. They're driving him out. It says, but passing through their midst, he went away. A rabid crowd is about ready to throw you off a cliff because you claim to be the Messiah. And all we get from the historian Luke is, but passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them. How did that happen? Now we know later he's walking through walls and showing up in rooms. So does passing through the midst mean that he just disappeared? And then what's this whole crowd doing? Like, have you seen the movie Men in Black? It's not a great movie, but it's a fun movie. And they have a little device, you push the button and it erases their memory. I think, is that what Jesus did? He get him to the cliff, and he's like, hey, look at my finger. And he just walks through. I don't know. I want, that's one of my, on my list of questions when I get to be face-to-face with the Lord. How'd you do that? What happened there? But he, even in that moment, so think about the juxtaposition of this happening to Jesus. Desert, teaching, everyone loves him, everyone's around him. He goes to his hometown, proclaims he's the Messiah, and those people want him dead. He just got, think of the heartache in that moment. The place that he grew up, the people that knew him the most, rejected wanted to kill him. Even Jesus didn't just have one desert moment. In his humanity, he just got rejected by his hometown. They were literally going to throw him off a cliff. This wasn't the religious leaders. This wasn't the Pharisees. It wasn't the Sadducees. It wasn't the Sanhedrin Council. He was going to put him on the cross. This was his friends and his family. He went through their midst. And he goes and continues teaching in Galilee. Just when you think your time in the desert is over, there could be one more time coming. It doesn't mean that you're just free of it all. So the question we have for today on Palm Sunday, are you in the middle of the wilderness right now? I think I am. I know I am. If you're in the middle of the wilderness, what are you doing to grow closer to God in it? If you feel like this is a tough season, are you just sitting in the pain? Are you doing something to grow closer to God in it? Are you clinging to Him? When you're in that pain, do you push God away and say, how dare He, I can't believe this? Or do you trust and go, I don't know what's happening, Lord, but I know you're going to get me through it. Show me how, show me which direction, show me what to do. Are you in the middle of that wilderness? Are you in the middle of it right now? Are you on the verge of getting out of it? Has it been a rough season? And you feel like it's slowly getting less. Maybe it's been years. 
years of heartache, years of pain, years of, I mean, the grief process. Some of you have lost loved ones in the last few years. That doesn't just go away overnight. Where are you at in that process? Are you still in the moments where you can't breathe? And it takes God to get you through. You can't. You have no capacity for anyone else because it's just so hard. Are you in the place where you're slowly allowing yourself to care and to push in, and you're giving of yourself a little more? Like this is sometimes the season in the wilderness is I need to be cared for. I don't have the capacity to help anyone else or to plug in anywhere. So you're lifted and carried by others. And as you're able to get your feet under you a little more, then you start bringing some people along with you. Sometimes it happens all at the same time. I feel that's where I'm at right now. It's all happening at the same time. There's days I need carried. There's days that I'm doing the carrying. But he's going to get you through it. And if you're through the wilderness, are you ready to use that? Are you ready for your synagogue moment with Je- like Jesus just had? If you've been through the wilderness and you've come out closer to God, the expectation should be that you're going to use that for His glory. And that doesn't mean on a stage necessarily, but it means connecting with your friends, connecting with your family, pouring yourself into others a little bit. And honestly, this is a cycle that's our whole life. I wish it wasn't. I wish I was naive like I was when I was 17, first saved. So I'm a Christian now, and it's all going to make sense, and I'm not going to be tempted by sin anymore, and I'm going to live a righteous life, and the Lord's going to protect me and keep me and bless me. This is going to be amazing. And it is, but there's there's lots of bumps along the way where I'm like, really, God? What are you doing in this? Really? I don't understand. I don't know what you're doing. I know you love me. I can cling to that. I know you're going to get me through this. But could you do it more my way and not your way? Please? I have those conversations with him. But I know that he's going to use everything for his glory. In the middle of the desert, it's hard to see that. It's really hard to see that. You're just clinging on for dear life. You grow closer to God, and when you're out of that desert season, out of that wilderness, and you can kind of see in the rearview mirror, that's when you go, oh, God was here, here, here. Wow. He's amazing. In the middle of it, you might need that cloud of witness. You might need the people around you to hold you tight. It's really hard to see it. So where are you at? Identify where you're at. Think about it. And then you know what you need to do. If it's a season where you need to be carried and need to grow closer to God, you need to share that with some others. You need to let some people in. If you're getting through that desert and you feel like you're on the verge, you need to start asking God to reveal to you what's next. Okay, Lord, how do you want me to use this? Okay, Lord, what is next for me? Okay, Lord, who do I need? what am I going to do? You got me through this, and I'm so in love with you for getting me through this. What's next? 
And then when you're all the way out of it, let him use you. Let him use you. Your story speaks volume to people who are in the middle of their own desert. And if they can look you in the eye and you can say, I've been this and this, God kept that you're going to encourage someone, they'll get through it. All right, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for the constant reminder from your word that we aren't alone. That we don't have to do this life alone. That we don't have to walk through our deserts and our wildernesses alone. That you have us right next to you. Help us, Lord. Help us cling to our family and friends who, who love you too and can get us through these times. And when you walk us through these wilderness seasons, I pray you'll give us the wisdom and the vision of how that can be used for your glory. Not that we welcome pain. Not that we welcome turmoil. None of us want that. But we know there's an enemy that prowls to destroy all of us. And if he can't take us out, we know he can't remove our salvation. We know he can't pull us away from you. He can take us out of the fight. So I pray that you'll give us the strength to continue because it only comes from you. Help us, Lord, and help us to be examples to the people that are around us who know you and who don't know you, that you're good, and that you will sustain us through every season. In Jesus' name, amen.